Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for the sake of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in his house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph that day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to him, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. She told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice, I cried. He left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way the servant has treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Father, we come to for, before you as a community, uh, and we plea, forgive us, help us, change us. For we have the wickedness that all humans have. 
We desire our own way. We rebel. We look to our own selves and not to you. And Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you every hour. And because of Christ, because of his death and his resurrection, we can come to you in prayer. We can plead before you, knowing that Jesus is our mediator, that his blood has paved a path, has cleansed us of this sin. And Lord, as we come to you now, we ask for more of your grace, more of your mercy, more of your love in our lives. Not that we would be built up, but that we would have more grace and more mercy and more love for one another. Lord, help us, help us to be quick to forgive, quick to listen, slow to anger, slow to judge. Lord, help us to have a witness, a good witness of you because of this in our homes, in this church, and beyond into this neighborhood. Lord, you have placed Christians in cameras, and I ask that you would uh, give us boldness and great fervor for your name. Lord, thank you for scripture, and that today we can have it opened uh, and, and laid bare in front of us, that we would learn more about you and more about uh, who you are calling us to be. Lord, let us be like Christ. Amen. Good morning. So good to see you. This is uh, one of the iconic Joseph stories this morning, and it is actually quite instructional in that it actually begins to tell us who we should be as we live in God's presence. And we've talked uh, in the past about how we are the brothers. Joseph is uh, always depicted as this righteous and wise ruler, and how he is saving the wicked brothers, and they are transformed through the story of Joseph. But we also see that in Christ, we are called, commanded to live like he does. And so, Joseph does begin here to be a good example. There's actually probably nobody else in Genesis that we can say, hey, there's a really good example of someone that you should follow what they did. Joseph is, is perhaps the first. If you're visiting with us, we have been working through Genesis for over a year, and now we are seeing so many of the themes that have been building up to this point here in chapter 39. And this is the wonderful thing about going through a book of the Bible, is like any other book, the author is setting foundations and foreshadowing and bringing things to fuller understanding, especially as the, the Holy Spirit works through the, the Scripture, God breathed Scripture, it all builds up. And so as we go through Genesis, Joseph's story really depends on so much that we've looked at already. And so if we were to take the time to look at each of the major themes that come together here that I could lecture all day, 
and you would love that. But instead <laughs> of doing a five-part sermon series or something, what I've done this morning is pared these down to develop the two major points of the text as it would have been understood by the original audience. And so I'm going to introduce them as they come up, but first let's look at the introduction of this scene in verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And so we're reminded at the outset of the context by a mirrored introduction from the last chapter, Genesis 38.1, where Judah also went down from his brothers. The interruption of the Joseph narrative with the story of Judah and Tamar is meant to imply that these are somewhat concurrent events, and there is quite a lot in common between these two episodes. Judah and Joseph are both separated from the family. They go down from their brothers. They are both presented with temptation. And finally, we see that the hand of God is upon them both in bringing about His desired outcomes for their lives. But other than that, there are also quite a lot of significant differences to their responses, which are meant to serve as contrast between these brothers. Now, you might not remember much about Judah as a main character in the Joseph story, but the original audience all knew that Judah was the ancestor of Israel's royal tribe. And only a little while after it's written, the predominantly Jewish audience would all trace their lineage back to this son of Jacob, heightening his importance. Now, think about it this way. As we go through this, we, you might not re- realize Judah is one of the, the key figures, and, and I can understand that. But think about if someone's telling you a story about back in the war, uh, you know, your great-grandma was rescued by this soldier, and some, you know, there's a story to it. Well, you might remember the soldier's name, but the big part of the story is that great-grandma was rescued. You know, you know, when you know the person and they're part of your family tree, it takes a different sort of significance. So just so you know, I'm not trying to like push this Judah thing in inappropriately. When it's your ancestor, it's a big deal. And so Judah is this contrasting character to Joseph, which we're going to see. And then... Uh, you know, that's the, the original audience. Today's audience, it, it's, uh, the significance is intensified even further for Christians because the genealogy of Jesus is traced to and through Judah. And so, the story of Joseph, I want you to see, is also the story of Judah by way of contrast and because Judah and his family will be preserved by the actions of Joseph here. This introduction also sets the stage. Joseph, who has been sold by his brothers as a, a humane alternative to murder, has now been sold once again. But this event foreshadows Joseph's rise because instead of being sold into what would normally be brutal agricultural labor, he is purchased by an important Egyptian, which is emphasized by Potiphar's extended title here. He is Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian. You know, this is one of the longest titles in the Bible, emphasizing this is a really important guy. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. 
His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. In the house of this important man, uh, which is repeated five times, he's in the house, emphasizing Joseph's elevation by God uh, to an exalted position in the exalted house of this important guy. And Joseph in the house was favored. And so far, it's told us nothing at all of Joseph's behavior, only that he found favor because God was with him and caused all that he did to succeed. Now, because of a modern view of slavery, and especially remembering the horrors of racially-based American slavery, it would be easy to miss that this was considered a fortunate turn of events for Joseph. To be an important slave to an important man was a very enviable position for the vast majority of the ancient population. It was uh, people who would be spoken of quite highly. This was something that you would aspire to. In fact, some, a free person would gladly sell themselves as a slave to be an important slave in an important household. And so you have to understand that this is not something further bad happening to Joseph. Joseph has had something really bad happen to him. He's been thrown into the pit, and now he's been rescued from the pit and elevated to be the most important slave in a very important household. Joseph has come from the murder pit to becoming Potiphar's personal assistant and official over his entire estate. And he will even emphasize that as he speaks in uh, rebuttal to Potiphar's wife. Previously, we saw that while the rest of Genesis is full of supernatural communication and works of God in signs and wonders, these descriptions come to a complete halt in the Joseph narrative. And we talked at length about that a few weeks back, but where God was the most common verb verb subject, so every time someone was doing something, it was usually God, and it was always fantastical, Uh, throughout Genesis, now he seems to fade into the background. Only here, in chapter 39, is God's name even mentioned by the narrator during the Joseph story. And so God's name, which in our English Bible is usually written capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is uh, Yahweh or however it would be pronounced, Y-H-W-H, and we don't actually know what the vowels are, but this is the name of God. And, And to put this into perspective, the name of God is used 163 times in Genesis which is 50 chapters, but only eight times in this, its final and largest narrative of over 12 chapters. And so, and all of those eight times are here in this scene, which is bracketed by the Lord's name as bookends on either end, uh, like the cookies of an Oreo. And so, all eight times, the name of the Lord is used in conjunction with God's presence and blessing with Joseph. And so verse 2 begins, the Lord was with Joseph. And then twice in verse 3, the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. And again, two more times in verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. 
And then the scene closes out in the exact same way. Verse 21, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love, that is, hesed, God's covenant love and faithfulness, and gave him favor. And finally, verse 23 echoes perfectly verse 3 with the dual expression of God's presence and blessing. The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And so it's these bookends, what is called an inclusio, which gives us our first main point this morning. Point number one is that despite the lack of signs and wonder evidence, God is with and blessing His people. This is the big point here. God's supernatural works are, are no longer visible. And we talked at length about this. This didn't mean that God was backing off, but really that everything that was taking place was the work of God. There was no longer special events. The special events were meant to catch people's attention. But now they are to a mature faith, a mature believer understands that God is at work in everything, and everything that anyone does is allowed by God, set up by God. The providence of God is at work in all things. And so God now in, in Scripture gives this in evidence that He is with Joseph eight times it tells us. It's impossible to miss the point that God was with Joseph in this chapter. But this point goes so much further. The point is that God is with Joseph for the rest of his life, despite no apparent or supernatural intervention. And that same presence was with Joseph when his brothers were debating how to eliminate him. And it was with him when he was in the pit of death. And it was with him when he joined the Ishmaelites as an involuntary passenger to Egypt. It also becomes clear that God was with Tamar and with Judah when God caused her risky scheme to bring her success and to bring both discipline and rescue to Judah. The with of God is not merely his presence, otherwise that would be meaningless in describing the one who is always present in all places. It includes the blessing of God, which works all things out for the good of His chosen ones. It is the with of alliance. I'm with Him. God has taken up the well-being of His people. And so the benefit of God's presence is experienced even in slavery, even in prison. And though Joseph's situation changed drastically from time to time, God's relationship with him stayed exactly the same. He's with him, working all things. We also see here that the blessing of God is not autonomous. It, it, it's not in Joseph's hands to keep or control. It's not as though God gives a blessing and then the, the blessed one has this tangible blessing with which they do whatever they like. In fact, it is most in evident, evidence here in this episode by the blessing that comes to Potiphar's house. So let me, let me tell you, if it were you or I or Joseph controlling the narrative, this blessing would come in quite a different way. So the blessing of God's on Joseph, but how does it work out? Potiphar is, is blessed. At the time, oh sorry, just as God had uh, blessed Laban because of Jacob's later, labor back in, in chapter 30, now he blesses Potiphar because of Joseph's labor. 
And at the time, I'm sure that you or I or Joseph would have preferred a different expression of God's blessing, but it is this blessing of Potiphar that shows that God was with Joseph just as He had been with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me explain. The covenant which God made with Abraham and all of his descendants by faith promised His presence with them and that they would be a blessing to the nations of the earth. And so, uh, this brings us to the the second main point this morning. Number two, those who know the presence and blessing of their God will live in wise obedience. So, it was part of God's promise on Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and those who would come after them, that they would be a blessing to the nations around them. And so, God's blessing and choosing of Joseph is now made very clear to him. It's made very clear in this context that he has the Abrahamic covenant. God has chosen him to make covenant with him. He is, presence is with him, he is blessed, and he is a blessing to those around him. Verse 6, second part of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put, oh, and, yeah, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Joseph is described throughout the narrative as a wise ruler, living out the instruction of Proverbs and other biblical wisdom literature. Biblical wisdom teaching warns that sexual immorality, especially adultery, will ruin both a man and his career. We looked briefly at Proverbs 6.26 last week to gauge the goat Judah had paid Tamar, but it also tells us something about adultery. It says, the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. And so, Joseph's refusal is based on his characteristically wise combination of both prudence and faithful obedience. It would be a sin against God, but it could also be suicide. But Joseph's is a special kind of prudence. It's not a calculation about personal well-being. It is his understanding that he is chosen by God, a man of destiny, and that destiny cannot be squandered on a fling of passion. And this, coming back just to repeat the, the second main point here, the first main point being that God is with His people despite lack of certain types of evidence. The second point is that those who know the presence and blessing of God will live in wise obedience. It's not just that Joseph is so wise in obedience, but we must see here why. How can I too be wise and obedient like Joseph? It's not that Joseph is a man without a passion. It's that he has a superior passion. He knows what it is that he has been promised, and he will not now settle for something inferior. 
The, the narrator tells us that the great man, Potiphar, entrusted everything to Joseph with the exception of the food he ate, uh, which rabbinic tradition assumes as a euphemism for sex. It's unlikely that uh, Joseph ruled Potiphar's house but had nothing at all to do with making sure food was bought and prepared. And so Joseph, when he repeats the narrator's assessment, he substitutes food with Potiphar's wife. Verse 9 saying, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And so the narrator says all that was kept back was control of his food. Joseph says all that was kept back was Potiphar's wife. Now, again, we should see what a lofty position Joseph has been quickly elevated to here. Joseph has been presented with the opportunity to enjoy everything that his master does. He says, he has not withheld anything from me except you. And now he's presented with the opportunity to enjoy absolutely everything that his Egyptian master does. And this sin would give Joseph essentially the one thing that he lacked. So his master has provided him everything except for sexual fulfillment. And now that has been offered to him. It's not that Joseph doesn't want to be fulfilled in every way, but that he realizes that God has promised him something far greater. It is the knowledge of God's presence and blessing that rightly order Joseph's passions. Joseph is convinced that he was chosen by God to rule. And now the evidence of God's presence by blessing Potiphar's house has strengthened his faith just in time to keep him from sinning. Joseph possesses the dream of the God of Israel because he knows who he is by God's sovereign decree. He has the power to bless Egypt, but he will not be assimilated by it. He will not sin against the God who is with him and who has blessed him. Verse 11, but one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men, was, men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. She then laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. Up until this point, Mrs. Potiphar has stalked Joseph like prey, trying to wear him down with repeated advances, uh, but now she pounces. The narrator is careful to make sure we know that Joseph is attending to his duties because Joseph is now in this foolish situation of being alone with this woman. He, he makes it clear that the, there's an excuse. Joseph had to do his job. So Joseph is, is forced into a situation uh, of, of great peril. Previously, it had been mentioned, verse 10, that Joseph would not allow any compromising situation with her. Joseph was described back in verse 6 as handsome in form and appearance. 
which are strangely the exact same terms used to describe his mother Rachel in chapter 29, verse 17, and his great-grandmother Sarah in chapter 12, verse 11. It's actually very similar also to the description of his grandmother, Rebecca, in chapter 26, verse 7. This is a unique description in Scripture for a male because it basically communicates that Joseph had the beauty of his foremothers. And this beauty, they were all, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel were all known for their beauties. Remember, they're not, this isn't the family line. They're all married into the family. This is quite a good uh, practice. I've practiced it myself. If you want to have beautiful children, you marry someone better looking than you. Uh, and so the, the uh, family of Abraham keeps on marrying beautiful women, and Joseph is the product. He is a beautiful man. Uh, but this had also made them a target for sexual predators as well. Remember, Sarah, for instance, was also taken by an Egyptian. Uh, this happened to uh, Rebecca. Um, and then, I mean, guess, I guess Jacob would have been the predator in the, the Rachel story. Uh, lie with me is a mere two words in Hebrew. This brutish expression is then followed by a brutish act. When seduction fails, now she tries to force herself on him. And then that fails, and Joseph flees. She spitefully accuses him to the other men of the household and then to her husband. This woman is a trap, one way or the other. What is important here is that we see the contrast between Joseph's restraint and Judah's sensuality in the previous passage. These are, are juxtaposed. These are contrasts here. They both face an opportunity for sexual immorality. But, but after that, these scenes are marked by complete contrast. Where Joseph was alone and stalked by a woman who was determined to seduce him, Judah propositioned a veiled woman on the side of the road while accompanied by a friend. Do you see how these are just like everything about the situation is the opposite? Joseph fled immorality while Judah rushed headlong into it. Joseph's resistance would create risk, while Judah would have kept himself from risk had he resisted his urge. The contrast here is so much like the way the fourth chapters of both Matthew and Luke contrast the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness against the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, where they are full and surrounded by other food. Jesus had fasted for 40 days, Matthew 4, 2, and was hungry. So the point is his temptation is far more acute. Jesus uh, and, and Joseph both experienced a far greater temptation than Judah did, yet were able to resist and flee because they knew something that Judah did not, the dreams that God had given Joseph ensured him that he was chosen by God and had been promised better things. This is such a key to fighting sin in our lives, to replace the passion with a greater passion, to understand that to give in to idolatry, to give in to the sins that, that beset us is to actually set aside something greater. Joseph will not trade the dream of God for satisfaction in the house of Potiphar, lofty as it was. As high and mighty as the house of Potiphar, it was not good enough for Joseph. He had been promised better by God. The risk of resistance is worth it because God has assured him of a far greater outcome. Judah, on the other hand, had not entrusted himself to the dream. 
In fact, he had resisted the dream, thinking to defeat it because it would have him submitting to his brother. You see, our modern egalitarian sensibilities and notions of equality have no capacity for a world in which everyone is getting far greater than they deserve according to God's mercy. Judah fails to understand that he would be elevated with Joseph, even if Joseph would be the one to rule. And so, with no assurance of greater good from God, Judah is left to seek good things for himself. In our situation, are are we trusting the goodness of God that is promised to us, every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus? Are we trying to grasp all the good things we can get now? Are we sacrificing the promise? Joseph did not sin because he was convinced beforehand of the marvelous calling of God, both to be blessed and be a blessing. It is then the calling of God that will enable God's servants to resist temptation. Those who know the presence and blessing of their God will live in wise obedience. And so Potiphar's wife miscalculates. Unaware of the resolve granted to Joseph in the dream promise and presence of God, she grabs him, but the grasping doesn't reach Joseph. Only his clothes are left in her hand. Verse 19 As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. The commentators point out uh, that the narrator does not say at whom or why Potiphar was angered. And perhaps it is his way of indicating that Potiphar is not completely convinced of his spouse's accusation and is not quite as gullible as he first appears. Um, I mean, right away, the punishment for a slave to do the thing that Joseph has been accused of is not go to the king's prison. The, the punishment for a slave who does the thing that Joseph is accused of is immediate execution without question, okay? So, uh, this, this wife's false accusation also took a shot at Potiphar, verse 17, saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to laugh at me, Again, laugh is regularly used as a euphemism in Genesis. He probably just didn't have a little chuckle. Um, His anger was kindled, but we are left wondering if he has believed her story or if it was because of her verbal attack on his person or because he was about to lose the services of a slave who brought success and blessing to everything that he did. Probably this last one. Probably uh, Joseph's character uh, speaks for itself, and despite the slander of the immoral woman, he receives the benefit of the doubt and is not executed for the crime that he is accused of. Either way, it doesn't immediately work out great for Joseph because he goes from enjoying everything that the great man Potiphar enjoyed except for his wife. He is sent into the vault reserved for the king's prisoners. For the second time now, Joseph was imprisoned for being faithful to his master. 
And this oftentimes gets missed in, in as we tell this story. First, Joseph had been obedient to his father. Wearing his royal robe, had gone out to check on his brothers, and there they had imprisoned him in the pit. Now he's again imprisoned for being truly faithful in Potiphar's house. And in both cases, his garment was taken from him. And in both cases, it was used for a false report to his master. All this has happened before. I love this when this happens in our lives. When, when God has brought us through something, and then, and then the same sort of thing comes up again, we're like, oh, I know how this works. I've, I've been here before. God is faithful. He's going to bring me through. And we can have the benefit of that as we tell the stories to one another of God's faithfulness, God's goodness. Hopefully, we can learn from the story of Joseph here this morning without having to have these same things happen to us. And so, we have this story of God's faithfulness. Joseph knows how God has done this. This is not his first rodeo. It is not the first time Joseph has had to function without his royal clothes. But the clothes do not make the man. The promise of God through the dream has made this man. And that cannot be taken away from him. Who are you in Christ, church? It can't be taken from you. You can be maligned. You can be slandered. You can have your finances taken from you. You can have your home taken from you. You can have your clothes taken from you. You can have your health taken from you. But you cannot lose who you are. And what we are is so highly elevated in Christ. We enjoy all the blessings of the great man. Joseph knew that God could raise him from the murder pit. He can do it again from Pharaoh's prison. Stripped yet again, Joseph trusts the Lord to clothe him with dignity and with honor. In a final contrast with Judah, Joseph did the right thing, even though he suffered for it. And this introduces a Bible-wide theme of God's suffering servant, who is not immediately re- rewarded, but who endures suffering for righteousness' sake and is ultimately blessed. Judah, on the other hand, suffers for his rebellion with the loss of his family and suffers humiliation for his part with Tamar. Scripture tells us, 1 Peter 2, 19-20, For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if you do good and suffer for it, sorry, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Joseph suffers unjustly, but his suffering is according to God's will. As an obedient and suffering servant, he will rescue his brother Judah, who has not yet understood and entrusted himself to the promises of God. All of God's people are commanded to take up their own cross to follow Christ Jesus, the ultimate suffering servant to which Joseph can only point. In 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We too have future brothers and sisters in Christ who have not yet heard or believed the dream. 
we will suffer if we are to be used by God for their rescue. Choosing the path of suffering for faithful obedience will require trust in the promise of God's presence and blessing. Jesus' ultimate promise to the church, Matthew 28, 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In Genesis, the name of the Lord will not be used again by the narrator, and only once at all later in Jacob's final prayer. But the theological statement is made here. In silence, in the silence, God is with His people working all things for their good and His glory. God shows His hased, His covenant loyalty, His covenant love to His own. He is loyal, and His loyalty has the capacity to transform situations. Like I said, Genesis 39 is like an Oreo. The, the middle is mushy. It commands a life to be lived at great risk. As in verses 7 to 20, it must be lived in the face of deceit, temptation, and seduction. It must be lived in a world where there appear to be ways to gain self-security for ourselves. And it's going to look different ways for different people as they go through the different scenarios of their lives. But on either end, verses 1 to 6 and 21 to 23 are the firm biscuits of high theology. All things are confidently settled by God. You see this on either end. God's in control. He's with him. He's working all things for his good. It's confidently settled. There's a middle where we need to live in the reality of that truth. And this sets up the whole rest of the story of Joseph. As we see clearly that God is with him and working through him and working through every actor, and yet never again is it said that God did anything at all. Things are confidently settled by God. He's working all things for good. And today, you and I are called upon to live lives of great risk, risking it all, lives of obedience and sacrifice in the face of opposition, lives of truth in the face of being persecuted. And we are only capable of taking the risk when we know that everything is confidently settled by God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, which always cuts right to my heart. Lord, I pray that You would give us the assurance this morning that produces transformation a renewing of our minds that would result in lives of sacrificial and faithful obedience to You. Lord, we have failed to trust the dream promise. We have failed to live rightly in the knowledge of, of who You are and what You are capable of and what You have promised. And it's been such a wonderful thing to see it reminded or brought again to our remembrance over and over again in Genesis, your sovereign control in all things, your faithfulness, your love, your chesed, covenant loyalty. Lord, I pray that by your Spirit you would bring us to the place of fully entrusting ourselves to you. For when we do, we will follow you 
in sacrificial obedience, living righteously in wisdom. God, I pray that you would do this in your church for your glory, that the name of Christ would be exalted despite whatever suffering it may cause us for the short time so that we would ultimately be glorified with you and raised up on the last day. We ask for your mercy, for you do not give us what we are deserved, and we ask you for your grace as you give us what Jesus deserves in his righteousness, who perfectly obeyed in obedience that brought him sacrificially to the cross on our behalf. May we now go also and live sacrificially in a way that wins others to you so that we may enjoy them forever. Do this for the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen.